So I'd like to welcome all of you to our annual New Year's retreat. And I'm happy to see uh, some of the golden oldie yogis here. Seem to come back every year for more punishment, <laughs> more bliss, whatever. <laughs> and um, both Marcia, who's going to be leading the retreat with me, and myself. We also um, look forward to meeting those of you who we haven't met and who may be here for the first time. I'd like to begin this evening by talking a little bit about the spiritual path, using an analogy, first of all, that, that Ram Das refers to in one of his books as spiritual evolution being like the passage of time on a clock. And that from the period up to around six o'clock, the beings who are incarnated are primarily concerned with the physical universe, with the world as matter. And during this period up until six o'clock, that a lot of the concern is with livelihood, with making money, with accumulation of wealth, and that this is chosen uh, in this particular period of time. Um, Sometimes people in this first segment of evolution are needing to learn about generosity, about sharing, and about attachment. Attachment to wealth, attachment to having or not having. And that this is the primary learning at this first stage of evolution is how we relate to the physical universe, the matter uh, universe. And Sometimes people in this first segment will choose an incarnation in which they have plenty of wealth so that they can explore the practice of being generous and what attachment that they may have to money and how to, how to work with generosity with giving and with receiving. At this point in time, the human mind may not realize very much its spiritual nature, but the consciousness rather is much more fixed in looking at themselves and at life more from this physical perspective. At this point, a human being doesn't realize themselves as being a spirit, doesn't realize themselves as being a soul, but rather identifies with their physical being, with their body, as being who they are. In time, there comes a realization that we're more than just our physical body. That is, we start to realize more deeply that 
we are spirit or that we are something more than just our physical body. And as that realization hits home and it, you may, in the course of your life, have realized that, oh gosh, I'm more than just this physical body, I'm more than just my name, I'm, j- I'm more than just my family identity, I'm more than just the accumulation of wealth that I have, I'm more than just the identity that I have with my occupation or with my religion, that there is a deeper realization on some level in which we understand that we're also spirits, that we're also souls. Before this, our life may not have been very introspective because it was so concerned with matter and with the physical. But increasingly, as we start to move along the passage of time on the face of the clock, we start to increasingly turn our attention inwards and start to become more introspective, start to look at ourselves more from the light of being spirits, as being spiritual beings who are inhabiting a human body. This woman friend of mine once said, we're not human beings trying to have a spiritual experience, but rather we are spiritual beings already and we're here, we're here in the world and we're having a human experience. It's a, just a little different way of looking at our existence. So oftentimes in meditation we're always wanting and striving to have some kind of a spiritual experience. And not realizing that we're spiritual already, that that is our nature, that our primary nature is, uh, is, is being spirit that is who we are in our essence, in our true nature. And that oftentimes the difficulty more is allowing ourselves to be human. So as we start to proceed somewhat on the passage of time, start to move further past six o'clock. That is, we start to have more of a faith in our life, more of a faith in God, whatever it is that we perceive God to be, the eternal, the absolute, Buddha consciousness, nirvana. There are many different terms and words that one might use depending upon your religious affiliation or your particular spiritual leaning or how it is that you experience the Absolute, how you experience the Eternal, how you experience God. As a Buddhist, one might experience it as being emptiness or nothingness or shunyata, and therefore may look at the Absolute as being nothing, of being total emptiness. A Christian might experience the Absolute as everything, as all-embracing love, and might give that experience the term God. But as we start to, as we move along the passage of time, and as we evolve spiritually, we start to sense this eternal, this Absolute within ourselves.
There's something within our consciousness that says, yes, this is what is the most real. This is the absolute. This is my true nature. This is my home. And it may be even happening on a very unconscious level, but there starts to develop a seed of faith within ourselves that truly in our heart begins to sense this and we start to be pulled forward, so to speak, more towards this absolute, more towards this eternal. So our faith, it starts to ripen, it starts to deepen. In Asia, it's a similar kind of situation. As spirits, we decide to incarnate into a particular body, into a man's body, into a woman's body. We decide to incarnate into a particular culture if our needs are best suited for our learning and our development, if our needs are best suited in, in being born into a Western culture at a particular time in history, then this is the culture that we choose to incarnate into because it best facilitates our spiritual development. For instance, if we need to learn about power and wealth and money, if we need to learn about a lot of the issues that we deal with here in this particular society, then this is the best place to be, naturally. And this is where our learning will most effectively take place. But some beings may wish to incarnate into an Asian culture, for instance, a Buddhist culture like I lived in in Thailand. And when I first went to Thailand and saw all the monks walking around in saffron robes and shaven heads, and I all thought they were enlightened. I said, boy, these people look wonderful. You know, they must, they must all be enlightened. And then I went to live in a monastery and saw that it was very, very different, especially after I ordained. The truth is that many people in the Buddhist countries don't meditate. Lay people, some do and some don't, but the large percentage don't meditate. The large percentage of lay people in in a Buddhist country, such as Thailand and Southeast Asia, and probably a similar situation in, in other Asian countries, in the Mahayana tradition as well, that most of what the lay people are practicing is dana, is giving, is generosity, and that is very highly developed. As a monk, when you go on alms around, the people are putting food in your bowl and they're giving you your robes and they give you a place to stay and they have a monk's hospital and they provide everything that a monk would need 
to continue with their practice. But a lot of them don't feel that they have what's called the paramis or good enough karma to be able to meditate. And they say that if they continue to give and be generous, then in another lifetime they'll have enough accrued good karma and then they'll be able to be born as a monk, born as a man and ordained as a monk, or be born as a woman and ordained as a nun in a meditation monastery and meditate. So mostly what they're practicing is generosity. Or they also pay a lot of attention to the precepts as well. And on the table in the dining room, there's a copy of the Tiapin order, the order of interbeing, which Titnat Han founded. And there's 14 precepts there that are precepts for both lay people and monks. And they're the ones that I feel are most useful as guidelines in living in our Western society. So if you want, please take a copy of that. So when, when the lay people in Thailand come to the temple, what they do is they come and they, they offer food to the monks, and then we do chanting, and they take the precepts. It's kind of like a church service, very similar to a church service here in the West. And so a lot of their practices around generosity and around the basics, such as observing the five precepts, and also on having faith, developing a deeper faith. Many of them will pray to the Buddha as if the Buddha was a god, rather than just a man. And when I, when I saw that happening, I was like, these people don't know what Buddhism is all about. You know, they're praying to the Buddha as if he was a god, not realizing that the Buddha was a human being like all of us, and that the essence of his teaching is to look within this human life to realize our true nature, and to use meditation as a vehicle to do that. And I thought, well, they're just wasting their time. But then, as I was living more in the culture, I began to see the powerful effect that the generosity and observing the precepts, and also the faith that they were developing during that time, how enriching that was to them. And this is what they're developing in their spiritual evolution, from about 3 o'clock to 8 o'clock, in that range. You know, slowly coming into just doing a little bit of meditation, being quiet. It's not very different in many of the monasteries, where I would say about 95% of the monks don't meditate, but rather are concerned with study, um, with performing ceremonies for the lay people, funerals, um, uh, going to people's houses to give blessings. You know, it's a way of life. Hanging out, you know, doing absolutely nothing. It's, you know, it's, it, that's, that's the way, that's the way it's, the culture is designed. And I used to think, wow, these people are wasting their time. They're not doing, you know, they're, they're wasting this great opportunity 
to be liberated, not realizing that this is exactly what they needed. They needed to be born into this culture, into this situation, and developing a level of faith and a level of generosity. Because in generosity, not only is there the giver, there also has to be the receiver. For generosity to work, there's got to be somebody giving, and there's also somebody receiving, right? So the lay people are giving, and the monks are receiving. So they're also learning about generosity. They're learning about how to receive is another part of generosity. The monks have a higher sila, or code of conduct, or vinaya, discipline, to work with. They have more rules, more precepts. So the monks in this particular society are deepening that aspect of their mental and spiritual training. So people who need this kind of situation and culture for their spiritual development will incarnate into this culture, into an Asian Buddhist culture. It's not so very different in our Western culture, too. If we look around at our society in a, with a, in a spiritual sense, what do we see? We see many churches. In North Carolina, there's a Baptist church on every street corner. If you go to Cleveland, there's lots of Catholic churches. There are synagogues all over, especially in certain areas, cities in the East especially. There are temples all over the world. So what is, what are most people developing in themselves if we look at our Western culture? A lot of it is faith. Christianity and Judaism, both are religions of faith. Buddhism, Hinduism, more religions of wisdom, shall we say, where the emphasis is more on self-understanding, which leads to deeper compassion and enlightenment. So a lot of people in our culture are learning faith. You know, I was just home visiting my parents, and my father is my father's 83 years old, and it was it was Christmas, and you know he was it was in the afternoon sometime, and my mother was sitting in a chair, and my father says, oh, "I just have to pray," you know. So he just sat there, and he prayed for a while. I was watching. I was I was standing in the kitchen. I was watching him. And he was praying, and then he put his hands like this. And he just took this breath, and I could see the sense of relief inside of him after he prayed, that it helped to calm him down. It brought him some peace. And this is what prayer does, is it brings peace to our heart. And so as beings start to move past 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, they're finding more this sense of introspection, more an awakening and awareness of themselves as spiritual beings, starting to realize the eternal, starting to realize and sense the presence of God. 
So we start to move on a little further, the passage of time, more towards 11 o'clock. And this, I think, is where the whole process really starts to intensify for us, where we start to sense in a strong way that the eternal, the absolute, and that there is a strong pull in our consciousness that, that's moving us faster to the eternal, to the absolute. Something like a moth being attracted towards a flame. If you ever watch that happening, the moth is flying around and it's just irresistibly attracted towards the flame until it enters the flame and then it burns itself and disappears. It's a similar thing that happens with our consciousness. That as we start to move more into our spiritual nature and start to understand who we are on a deeper level, that there's a powerful force within us that moves us faster and faster and faster towards the realization of our true nature. And that many of us, not just in this culture, but in every culture, find ways of accelerating that process. We may even choose to have the circumstances in a situation of a lifetime that facilitates deeper growth and understanding. I remember one monk in one of Rajan Chah's monasteries in the Northeast. He was different from the other monks. He was so diligent in his practice. And then somebody told me that he was married before he became a monk and that his wife died. And that he couldn't understand why his wife died like that at such a young age. He was very much in love with her. Why his wife died. And that the loss of his wife just started this process of needing to understand more what his life was about. And so he left home, he became a monk. And he was very diligent, I could sense the difference. It's similar with a lot of people I find in the West here, in our culture, who become interested in meditation. Oftentimes it's people with strong spiritual presence. Perhaps people who've been brought up Catholics or Jewish. There are more Jews in Buddhism than any other, <laughs> than any other religion. Most of the Dharma teachers that in the Vipassana tradition who are Westerners are Jewish. There's something about the nature of people born into this particular um, religion where there is a strong desire and search to know and to understand. Many people who 
I find who come to retreats are people who are also in a fair amount of pain. Many people who've been in abused families, people who've been physically and emotionally abused, sexually abused, people who come from dysfunctional families, people who um, whose parents were substance abusers or they themselves are substance abusers, people who are needing to confront very directly their sexuality, and that we may choose these particular circumstances of our life to be born into this particular family, this particular situation, in which there may be a lot of pain for us as we experience this lifetime. And the reason that we choose this kind of situation to be born into is because there is so much room for growth and development within the circumstances of this life. That we choose a certain circumstance to be born into and there's a deep level of pain and that we, that, that level of pain forces us to become more aware of ourselves. They start at a very young age may start a childhood, may, start, may manifest more in adolescence, perhaps a little bit later on in life, but the pain, the intensity of the pain in our lives forces us to look deeper within, to see who we are, to see our true nature. And it was designed this way, by us, for this very purpose of moving forward at a faster rate in our spiritual development. This especially becomes more pronounced from the range of 11.30 to 12 o'clock, is that we start to feel a strong acceleration um, of our spiritual changes that go on within ourselves. I see this happening. I see it happening with people who've been coming to retreats for a while as I get to know people. I see it in the counseling that I do. When I first came back from Asia, it was in 1979. I was there for eight years. And I came back as a monk, and I was undecided whether I wanted to stay in America or go back to Asia and live as a monk somewhere in Asia. And I visited the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, 
and I was very impressed with how sincere the people were who came there for retreats, the Western people. There was such a strong interest in meditation. After being there for a couple of years, I wasn't there the whole time, but after being there for a couple of years, it really started to give me more faith in this whole process of using meditation as a tool for spiritual development. So I decided to stay. And this path, it really does take a lot of faith. And it is our greatest lesson that we as human beings have to develop in our lifetime. Sometimes that can be difficult to do when life gets hard and when we struggle. There's a saying, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but loving? And it's true. Oftentimes our life seems like a struggle much of the time. And so what we're constantly being asked to feel within ourselves is deeper faith and deeper love. That this is really the essence of our spiritual path. Developing faith in ourselves, developing faith in who we are, accepting who we are, loving who we are on a human level, accepting and loving our humanness, our anger, our fear, our jealousies, our envies, our doubts, our desires, the whole realm of human experience in human mind. Then we embrace that. And we have faith in that. We have faith in our purpose in being here on Earth. And we have faith in our spirit. We have faith in our soul. We have faith in God. We have faith in the Absolute. We have faith in our Buddha consciousness. We have faith in our Christ consciousness. And then as we start to get in deeper touch with this faith within ourself, we start to become more committed to our spiritual path. And it takes a lot of faith and a lot of commitment to come to a retreat like this. It really does. It takes a commitment of time, you know, to get this amount of time off from work from the busyness of our lives to retreat like this. It takes effort and energy to get here, all the way up to Southern Dharma, from many different places. It takes a big commitment. It takes a big commitment to open yourself to a situation in which you're going to be silent for a full eight days. A very deep level of commitment in all of this. You may not think that it's much, but it really is a lot. And what's very inspiring to me is to see people constantly coming back to Southern Dharma Retreat Center and other places to do some more, 
you know, to meditate some more, become Dharma bums, you know, where people start to design their whole life around meditation, around spiritual seeking. This is truly the life of a mendicant, it's truly the life of a monk, of a priest. We're just doing it in a slightly different way within the context of our society, is all. You don't have monks and nuns' robes on, but the consciousness, the mind, that is willing to sit, to be silent, to be introspective, is the true definition of what a mendicant, of what a renunciate is regardless of, you know, being in a family, in a family, or out, or not, still it's more a matter of consciousness of mind, of attitude, which really defines one who is looking to that degree. So we've made the physical commitment to be here, to come here. And that is a big step, very big step to do that. Now the next thing is, we're physically here, can we be mentally here, in the now, in the present? That's even more difficult to be truly with our full heart, with our full mind, to be in the present moment. Our bodies got here. Sometimes it takes a little while for the mind to get here. I noticed it when we first started sitting. You're all talking in there, and there's all that energy. And also, all the energy was over here, but there wasn't the talking. But the energy was still there. I could feel the minds moving, and the wheels were turning. I could feel it, and then within 15 or 20 minutes, it really started to quieten down, didn't it? You start to feel much more the mind just quietening down, and the retreat is ready to begin. What makes it difficult for us to be fully in the present moment, in the now? What makes it dif- so difficult for that to happen? And usually it takes a couple of days for us to really start to calm down, for our minds to quieten down. Usually it does. Two or three days. That's what's nice about an eight-day retreat. You have a little bit more time, you know, so... Uh, the aches and pains of the body and the mind movement starts to... Everything starts to calm down in a matter of a few days. Right from the beginning, in our retreat, let's start to look at what is it that creates restlessness and agitation in our mind? What prevents us from feeling deeper peace? Oftentimes it's fear. Fear and apprehension is really what makes the mind move and doesn't allow us to feel more present and to feel a deeper level of peace and love. 
within ourselves is fear. Fear of what? What fears have you experienced coming into the retreat? Perhaps fear of, if you're new to the retreat, will I be able to do it? Will I be able to sit this long? Will I be able to be this silent? Perhaps the fears are, um, will it be enough time for me? Is eight days enough? Maybe you've done a longer retreat, you know, and, well, is this going to be enough time for me? Perhaps the fear is a physical pain, a memory of that, perhaps, the memory of experiencing some physical pain at a retreat, and will that happen again? The fear of, or the apprehension, um, will I experience what I want to experience, what I desire to experience? Will I get out of the retreat what I want to get out of the retreat? We usually come in with some fears in relation to the experience. Just looking, reflecting at your mind, are there, there are these fears there? What are the fears? Starting to identify them. Fear oftentimes is born of memory. It's from the past. It's related to the past. We have the memory of how something was. We remember that that memory is brought in, so to speak, to the present moment as fear. We experience it as fear creates restlessness, creates agitation, creates negative states of mind. For me, a fear in coming to the retreat is, it's well documented at this point that John always gets a cold at the New Year's retreat. This, I, I've read every New Year's retreat that we've had here. I'm, one year we didn't have one. It's been, I don't know, maybe six retreats, something like that. Except for one retreat, I've gotten a cold every time. Every time. And there's the memory of that. Oh no, the New Year's retreat's coming up. I have a lot to do before I get to the retreat. I visit my family in New York. I come down here. It's an intense experience. I'm going to get a cold. And my mind starts preparing for it, you know. As I start preparing for it, you know, as my, at my family's house and getting, trying to get as much rest as possible, taking vitamin C in preparation for the retreat, on the way up, stopping for Alka-Seltzer Plus and Sucrets, just to be prepared so for when I get the cold, you know, and as a memory of my body's going to be tired, you know, by the middle of the retreat, there's the mind's memory of all of this. And so the mind grasps hold of the memory, and fear is created. Fear and love cannot be experienced at the same time. When we're feeling fear, we're not experiencing love. When we're experiencing love, we're not fearful. When we're in the present moment, truly in the present moment, there's not a lot of room for fear. Because in being in the present, we're open and we're aware. We may see a fear arise within the context of being in the present moment. And that's good. That's what our practice is about. So, 
right away looking at the attitudes of mind coming into the retreat, what are you experiencing coming in, what are you experiencing right now as we enter into the retreat, and seeing how all of these mind moments are beginning to contribute to how you're experiencing the retreat. Because the retreat began some time ago, when you first signed up for it, when you started coming here, meeting in here, in the dining room, sitting in the meditation hall, and one thing conditions another. So starting to see the relationship between all of this is very helpful. During the retreat, Marcia and myself will be giving meditation instructions, sitting, walking, standing meditation. We'll be having um, group interviews to begin with the first day on tomorrow, and perhaps the day after that as well. And then we're going to be seeing people individually, because it's not an overly large group. Um, we'll be able to spend more time, hopefully, individually with people. And um, there'll be question and answer periods here in the hall. Uh, So there'll be plenty of opportunity to explore um, whatever it is that you wish to explore. In coming into a retreat, I usually don't have a particular theme that I want to work with. Sometimes I do. But oftentimes, in this kind of a Vipassana retreat, I rather would like to work with whatever it is that you bring into the retreat. I do have some areas of Dharma that I'd like to cover, and I'll do that in evening talks or as part of our discussions together. Um, But a lot of it also comes from you. And so when we do have the question and answer periods, um, I would encourage you to open up to whatever it is that you're wanting to look at more deeply, um, uh, some aspect of your life, practice at home, what's happening for you, for, the, for you at the retreat. Usually these things are all connected together. And that uh, we share this way. And oftentimes, um, what someone is bringing up in a retreat is frequently connected to what somebody else is experiencing in a retreat as well, which is the reason why we all come together. Why we all come together, so that in your sharing, um, whatever it is that you're interested in working with, in what's ever happening for you in the meditation or in your life, is oftentimes closely related to what other people are experiencing also. And the retreat is, um, I think, um, as, as Jean may have mentioned, it's in silence. The meaning of the silence is so that you are 
giving the most opportunity to be with yourself. It's not as punishment in any way. Um, you don't have to avert your eyes from other people's. If you want to look at someone, that's fine. If you want to look at a tree, that's fine. If you want to look at a cloud, that's beautiful too. Um, the object is, is not to ignore other people. The object of the silence, rather, is just to be more fully with oneself. And this allows our mind to be quieter and we can see more clearly as a result of this. If you meet somebody on a trail and you want to acknowledge that person, you don't have to look away. You can just look at the ground and continue to walk or you can just put your hands together like this. Perhaps saying to yourself, um, um, a, a white lotus for you, a Buddha to be. There's something short that you can say within yourself as you're acknowledging somebody else's presence. So this is the last evening of our eight-day retreat. And I'd like to give a talk that, that touches upon some things that we've mentioned so far that we've been looking at in the retreat and also hopefully um, some of what we'll talk about is um, are things that you can carry out of here with you as we re-enter the world the real world I want to talk some more about love it's my favorite topic as you can tell what is it that prevents us from feeling more love in our life? What is it that blocks it? And how can we intentionally cultivate more love and compassion and forgiveness in our life? And I want to speak about it particularly from the meditator's point of view. As people come into practice, as they even first begin meditation, because it tends to come up very soon. Um, the feelings of unworthiness, of inadequacy, of, of fear, of anger, of jealousy, of envy, uh, of greed, all the defilements and hindrances that we've been talking about in the retreat and have been working with, that they come up. They come up at the beginning of practice. And as a person is meditating and experiencing these different hindrances, um, these different states, it tends to reflect negatively in the consciousness. That is, a person sees all of this which they don't like and, uh, and ask themselves and say to themselves, how can I love this person? who's experiencing this jealousy and this envy and this, all this anger and ill will and this person that's always compulsively wanting things. How can, I, how can I love this person? And in that is the seed of self-judgment. 
which is one of the greatest things that prevents us from, from loving ourselves and embracing our heart, totally embracing our heart. So I want to talk about judgment this evening, but I also want to talk a lot about fear, because fear is very, very basic in what prevents us from loving ourselves more deeply, embracing our heart, and being able to allow the flow of love, which is inherently there. The love is inside of ourselves. It, it's somewhat like a shell that surrounds our heart. And this shell that surrounds our heart prevents us from feeling the love which is inside of our heart. And it also prevents the love from emanating outwards. It prevents it from flowing out of our heart and being able to touch other people. So I want to explore what the blockage is around our heart that prevents more of a deeper experience and feeling of love within ourselves, and also from it being able to touch others. The one thing that is most destructive to love is fear. Fear and love cannot exist at the same time. When we're experiencing fear, we're, we're not in a loving state. We're not experiencing love. And when we're truly feeling open and loving, we're not experiencing fear either. So as a as metta practice, loving-kindness practice, is developed, one must also look at the underlying fears that are preventing, that's preventing the, uh, uh, that's creating the blockage, the shell around the heart, so that this flow of love cannot be felt deeply. From my own experience and also in working with people, probably the greatest fear that people have is of not being accepted, of being rejected on some level. And I feel that the, this is the greatest fear because we have such difficulty accepting ourselves. It's, it's really a wonder how we can live in this body for 20, 30, 40 years and have so little self-acceptance of ourselves. There's so many things that we tend to dislike. And our mind usually alights on the things which we least like about ourselves. The things that are the people, other people see in us that are becoming, you know, our intelligence or our sensitivity or our compassion or our generosity. Um, or patience, whatever, that those things that are there inside of us, we tend to ignore completely. They just, we don't see them at all. But our mind so easily focuses upon the things which we don't like about ourselves. And it tends to happen perhaps even more to people who, in the beginning, start to become more self-aware, because that's what you're seeing. Oftentimes you're seeing the negative self-image. 
you know, the dislikes, the ill will, the anger, all the little nitty-picky things, the jealousies, the envies. You know, and minds very easily, you just grasp on hold of those and, boy, you're a terrible person. You're not very spiritual, not with all this stuff. And so there's a part of ourselves, there's sometimes more than just a part. There's a lot of ourselves which we don't accept. We don't accept our body, how it looks, how it feels. We don't accept our situation in our life, our livelihood. We don't accept our relationships. We don't accept this. We don't accept that. And within all of that non-acceptance, um, more fear, more negativity grows in our heart. And this creates this blockage. It just prevents us from feeling the beauty and the love that is inside of ourselves. It prevents us from seeing the pure essence inside of ourselves that is there because we're so blinded by the mind focusing upon the things which it doesn't, which it doesn't accept. When I was in southern Thailand, when I first ordained, there was um, another monk there. Actually, he was the first Western monk that I ever met, a very good friend of mine. We were very good friends in the Sangha. And he had been in the English equivalent of the Peace Corps for a year or two before he ordained, and he could speak Thai very well. And I was terribly jealous of him because I couldn't speak Thai. And he would walk around the monastery and all the Thais would go over to him and talk to him. And, you know, he was one of the boys. And here I was struggling with my meditation and seeing all this anger and jealousy and resentment towards my friend. And it started to build and build and build. You know, I just because all I was doing was meditating and we were in close proximity to each other. All these feelings started to build one on top of the other. I was becoming more jealous and more resentful and more scheming. And so a lot of this was unconscious at the time, mind you. <laughs> but I said to him, I said, you ought to go, you ought to leave this monastery. <laughs> And, and you should go to an island off the coast and live in a cave because you're getting too distracted here. This is not good for your meditation to be talking with the Thais like this. They won't leave you alone. You know? So for your, the good of your own practice, you should leave here and go. And he did. He left. And mind you, it was, very, it was unconscious. There was not too much of an awareness of intention at that point in my practice. It was like, I mean, I was very aware of the anger and the resentment and all that, but I wasn't aware of the intention and what I was saying to him. And so he left. And at first it was such a relief. It's like he's gone. <laughs> you know, and so a lot of the anger and the resentment and the envy and the jealousy was gone. You know. But then after about two weeks, I started to miss him. And part of what I missed was 
I realized how much he was a trigger for these mind states in me. He brought it up. He didn't have any idea he was doing this. And I apologized to him many years later after we both disrobed. I didn't tell him exactly what was in my, what happened, but I made a more general apology for certain things that went on during that, during that period. <laughs> And so I, I missed him, and I wanted to come back. And I saw the value of being in a situation in which this is coming up, and you get to look at it. You know, and it's almost as though you should really thank the person, who, whether it be the person in your office or in your household or in the neighborhood, who tends to create the catalyst for certain things, certain mind states that come up, which are things that we need to look at. It's hard to do at the time because you know, we're so caught in it. But it all comes back to this non-acceptance of ourselves. If we accept ourselves, if we love ourselves and who we are, there's not a great reason to be jealous or to be resentful or to be envious of somebody else. But it's because there's, so, there's, there's a, so, such little acceptance and embracing of our own heart, our own life, our own being, that the mind turns outward like that in looking for acceptance from other people, looking for approval, you know, in needing people's love, that need being so deep in the heart because it's not coming from within ourselves. Another fear that is a popular one is not getting what we need. A fear of not getting what we need in our life. And it can be a fear of not getting a relationship that we feel that we need. Um, a fear of not getting the love which we feel that we need. A fear of not having our material life and those needs met. There, we can each look inside of ourselves and see where this fear lies. For myself, in being a Dharma teacher, it's around dana, which is, as you know, an Eastern practice, um, an Eastern way of living, and a very beautiful one. Where, in as you as a monk in Asia, you're given everything you. You're given your robes, um, you're given medicine uh, if you need it, a place to live. You're given a bacon bowl and you go on alms around in the morning and this is how you get your food. And it's a very wonderful way of life and you feel the beauty of generosity, how absolutely beautiful it is to see it happening to the degree that it does in that culture. And you see that it's the Buddhist religion that has, that has developed that. And it, it's something which is very special to the world, extremely so. Very touched by it. I came from a background living in New York 
where people were not very generous to each other that way, and where life could be quite hard. And so it was a beautiful lesson to go to that kind of culture and to be there and to be a part of it. And the very presence of being in that kind of culture started opening your heart to being more generous. It's like people were so open-handed and wanting to give to you that it became contagious, that you felt like you just wanted to give and give and give more and give back. You know, and that's the whole meaning of dana, the whole meaning of generosity. It's a very, very beautiful thing. And those of us who, who are helping to bring Vipassana meditation to the West, we wanted to encourage the same kind of spiritual practice, because that's really what it is. Dana is a spiritual practice, giving. It's, um, it's very important. But in doing it, we're... we're offering these retreats on a dana basis in a society that is not used to this kind of system, shall we say. In our society, when something is offered like this, presented like this, usually there's a fee that's involved. And so there's a whole learning process that's needing to take place in people being more aware of generosity and also the needs of what teachers are in being in a situation in which we're living in a culture we have no church or organization supporting us so supporting us and so we're really very much reliant upon people who come to retreats to be able to support us it's a vital part of my livelihood and Marcia is to some degree because she's starting to just teach now, but it's also, you know, it's also important for her to be supported so that we can offer these teachings. And so there's fear in my mind at times that my needs will not be met. And it really hasn't been a problem. I mean, my, I pay my bills and it's okay. But because of certain changes in my past um, and the fact that I'm not teaching at certain centers that I have in the past, I don't have one retreat this summer. And that's usually my busiest time of year for retreats. But I'm not teaching at several centers. And I have absolutely no retreats. And so that creates some fear in me, a fear of my needs not being met. There's a lesson in this. And the lesson is to open my heart to more trust. There's always a lesson for us. Always, all the time. That's really the beauty of the spiritual life and living the Dharma is there's always something there right in front of us that we can learn and that we can grow from. And so this is the next one, is just the trust that things will turn out okay. You know, I was having images that I'd be riding around driving a taxi this summer. I was thinking, I just hope it's air-conditioned if it's in Durham. (laughs) 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 You know, I was was going through all these scenarios. And I realized it's, you know, five or six months till 
um, till the end of June, you know, and something might develop in that time. But right now, obviously, the lesson is to trust. You know, another quality of the heart, the trust that the universe will provide in some way. It always has, but sometimes we're asked to trust a little bit more. You know, somebody the universe says, okay, well, trust a little bit more. <laughs> A large part of learning to love is allowing what has been hidden and suppressed in ourselves to come more to the surface. And I see this a lot in my, my spiritual practice recently in getting in touch with past lives. I've been in a lot of past life work in the last especially in the last year and a half. And in looking at a whole series of past lives in which there was tremendous fear and anger and unworthiness and guilt and shame, brutality, abuse, both my being abusive to someone else, someone else being abusive to me, physically, sexually, a number of different ways. In looking at um, all this material that I realize now has been lying in my unconscious for a very, very long time and affecting me very much on a conscious level, I see how that being there hidden that way, how that contributes to the fear and to the blockage of the heart and to love. And it, a lot of it has to do with the actions of our past, which is what karma is, that what we have said and what we have done in the past. it creates karmic impressions in the mind. So when there is fear, when there is anger, when there is violence of some kind, when there is selfishness, that all of these different karmas, all these different actions have their imprint on consciousness. And it's there. The memory of it lies within the mind. But the thing that contributes most to the feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness and guilt and shame is our memory of these actions and also the unwillingness of ourself to look at them, which is really what this practice is all about. It's moving deeper into the mind and allowing what has been hidden and suppressed for so long allowing that emerge to a more conscious level. And the fear and the anger of the past, the selfishness, the greed of the past, 
that because of its being perpetuated lifetime out of lifetime, because it hasn't been looked into deeply enough, and therefore the kalesas, the defilements rooted out of the mind, because that hasn't happened, it creates a certain propensity in the mind. So one might find that, for instance, if there is a lot of anger, a lot of ill will, if that is a strong, um, if that is something which has been in the mind and been in the mind for lifetimes after lifetimes and played out within the course of a course of life, then it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. And the same thing with, with, with greed. If there is a lot of selfishness and a lot of greed and that has been unconsciously cultivated in the mind because of ignorance, because of the same conditions arising over and over, lifetime after lifetime, because the seeds of it are there within the mind. And because the seeds are there and the anger or the greed or the delusion starts to, it works within us lifetime after lifetime. And this is what creates the suffering. In Buddha Dharma, they talk about essentially three kinds of minds, three types of minds. First mind, one type of mind, is greedy, lustful mind. That is, the mind finds its find itself in a state of wanting, and that that is a predominant state of mind. Another type of mind is an angry, averted mind. And that one finds that there's a lot of ill will, there's a lot of aversion. That was the kind of mind that I had. And then there's the more the deluded mind, which is a mind that doesn't see clearly, where there's confusion, where there isn't clear seeing. And so if we, each of us looks at our mind, even though there might be an integration of these different kinds of mind, that we all experience some greed, some anger, some delusion. If we look at our experience, oftentimes we can see more that one, one type of mind is more predominant for us. And with that predominant mind, it's important to pay a special attention to the thoughts and the mind states that relate to that particular kind of mind. And as we do that, as we start to look more, look deeper um, into our mind, we start to see more, which is what is at the bottom of the mind that is more of a wanting mind, or more of an averted mind, or more of a deluded mind. And oftentimes what we start to see is fear, which is like an underlying current that is running deeper in the unconscious and relates very, very closely to those karma formations that I was just speaking of. 
because of the unwholesome karma that is, that is there, that has its impact upon the consciousness, there is great fear of the experience of that, the memory of that. And so what we almost unavoidably start to experience after a while is looking more directly at fear. First, the little fears, some of the fears that I've been speaking about, such as fear of rejection, fear of not getting what we need, um, fear of pain, fear, different fears that are very, very general to all of humanity that as humans we all have these fears, they're going to be there, but they're lighter fears. Then we have much more deeply rooted fears, I call them great fears. And the great fears are more personal kinds of fears. It's a fear of something which is a large issue within ourselves. And there's so much fear around that, that it gives rise to the thought in ourselves, if somebody knew this about me, surely they wouldn't accept it, they wouldn't accept me, and they wouldn't love me. Can be a fear of sexuality. It can be a fear of um, that one has so much anger, so much rage, that it's, it would be totally inconceivable if somebody knew how much anger and how much rage I had that they would love me. And it's because we can't accept it ourselves. It's, our, it's in the non-acceptance of... And it's, it's, it's the issues oftentimes that we come into in this lifetime to heal. Each of us, as we incarnate, we have a certain agenda, so to speak, and issues, particular issues that we're working with. I'm sure most of you understand, at least to some degree, what those issues are and where the healing needs to take place. But oftentimes, in experiencing that which is so unacceptable to us, the healing can't take place. We can't accept it ourselves. We can't accept our sexuality. We can't accept our anger. We can't accept our greed or whatever. And because it's so unacceptable to ourselves, it, it, we, it creates a separation between ourselves and that which we, don't, we can't accept. This is the fragmentation within ourselves. This is the duality. This is why sometimes we feel so deeply divided within ourselves, is because we see things, first on an unconscious level, we know they're there, or we don't know they're there, but they're working inside of us, and a part of our mind really has not much of an idea of what they are. All we know is we feel in a state of duality and separation and fragmentation. And then as we start to meditate more, we start to become more aware of what these things are, but yet there may not be enough of a level of acceptance within ourselves for these things. And so we still are at a distance. Even as we actually experience them, 
even as we actually experience anger, as an example. That as it, as it starts to come up, a part of it feels uncomfortable, it feels painful to us. And so there's a part of our mind that says, I don't like this anger. And in the mind saying itself, saying that to itself, I don't like this anger, or it feels uncomfortable, it feels painful. And oftentimes it's, you don't say it that way in concepts and words. It's more just the mind's reaction to it, which is trying to push it away, move away from it. Or lustful feelings start to arise in us. And our reaction to them is, I don't want these lustful feelings. I feel out of control when I experience them. I don't like that feeling of being out of control. I don't want them. So in that not wanting, there's aversion. There's fear and aversion of, the, of what we're experiencing inside of ourselves. And that fear and aversion itself is the duality. That is the separation. It might be jealousy. I have a friend who, that's her issue in life is jealousy. She has a husband who's attractive and other women are attracted to him. It's perfect setup. No wonder they picked each other, right? And so, you know, a woman will be attracted to him and, and or not even, you know, very visibly so, but in her mind she may think that and all this jealousy comes up. You know, just like a flash, it just comes right up. You know, and it's easy for her to, she doesn't have that great of an acceptance of it. You know, and so it creates the fragmentation. Any number of things. Look at yourself, look at your own mind. You know what it is for you. What is it within yourself that you're not accepting? And that's creating the duality and the fragmentation inside of yourself. This is the place where the healing can happen. Because it's in the embracing of whatever it is that we're not accepting in our life, it's in the embracing of that that we start to feel whole and complete again. This is where love can start to flourish inside of ourselves. So how can we work with fear and other mind states that arise for us? Well, just like we've been doing, the Vipassana is an extremely, extremely good tool. I'm so thankful that I came across this practice and this path in my life because I think it's an excellent way of working with the mind and the heart. What we're doing, as I described in another talk during the retreat, is just opening a clear space within ourselves that, so that we can see what's there more clearly. And we start to see a lot of 
the mind states, a lot of the emotion, the fear, the anger, whatever, we start to see it as energy and as energy patterns. We start to see it that it's something that is energy that's passing through us. And we experience it as it passes through us. But we don't need to grasp, we don't need to cling, we don't need to find ourselves in reaction, in relationship to it. We can just experience it as energy. Dependent origination or causal arising, I have found a most helpful teaching and part of Vipassana practice in which you start to see from moment to moment the chain that creates the mind states, that creates more larger states of consciousness or heavier emotions just by being aware of contact as I explained in, in one of the other talks, through one of the senses, seeing contact, and then the feelings that arise from that contact. So you see someone, there's some tension between you and this person, there's contact, the feelings of unpleasantness arise. From that, the unpleasant feelings giving rise to a tendency in the mind to be attached to the aversion. As I was speaking about before, when I was talking about karma and propensity, is that the mind tends to move in a certain direction. So if there's contact and unpleasant feeling arises in the mind, the tendency of that averted type of mind is to grasp and cling at the unpleasant feelings in the mind, and it gives rise to thoughts of ill will, of anger, of aversion, and if those are clung on to, grasp hold of, more the sense of I and me becomes established, the ego is more crystallized in consciousness, and we start to feel ourselves angrier and angrier, deeper and deeper into rage, ill will. The same thing happens with a pleasant feeling. When the mind grasps hold of it, if the, mind, if the propensity of our consciousness is towards wanting and desire, the mind grasps hold of the pleasant feeling. It gives rise to craving and clinging in the mind. And we're often wanting, we're often desiring, we're often craving, always wanting more and more. So that desiring type of mind, it moves. It, the seeds of it, the seed of, of that particular type of mind is the conditions for it are ripe for the mind to move in that direction. An awareness of this dependent origination helps us to break the chain. It helps us to see clearly from moment to moment exactly what is happening. And then we start to see when, when there's contact and when there's feeling and when the feelings arise, we don't cling to the feelings. We just see, okay, pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, neutral feeling. With the deluded mind, it's an unawareness of the neutral feelings, oftentimes, that we get caught and that there's unclarity of mind, because the mind is not aware of neutrality, and therefore it's not aware at all. It's not, it's not mindful of that neutral state, and therefore there is uh, uh, un, uh, unclarity of mind. That gives rise to a lot of delusions in the consciousness. So this helps a lot. We don't get caught 
in the fear and the anger and the state so easily. There's much more clarity. And that creates a spaciousness and an openness for ourselves. The other thing that's very helpful in working with the mind states is to open to whatever is arising without judgment, without condemnation, without blame, especially the heavier states that arise, the ones that we tend to identify with more, that when reminding yourself all of the time, and you might just want to make a sign, put it on your refrigerator or in your living room, non-judgment. Do not be judgmental towards yourself. It is the thing that creates more and more self. It's because we're judging and blaming that which we're not able to accept inside of ourselves. And it may be that there has to be a certain process of growth taking place before we're able to accept it. It's like our heart opens more slowly. And it's, a gra- it's a whole process and it's a gradual process. It's a gradual process of you know, just being more accepting. It, you, know, you might find it in a relationship, a similar kind of thing. If you live with somebody, there may be things that that person does which you didn't know about when you first met them. And then when you start living with them, you know, it starts to come forth, and there, it bothers you. It's, you know, it's not the way that you do things. And it's part of you say, I don't like that. And it's only in being with that person for some time that you gradually start to accept these little things about that person and not judge them and say that it's okay. It's a similar kind of thing with ourselves, that it's a gradual process, and there are things that we don't like, and it takes a while for that to become acceptable to us. And it becomes increasingly acceptable when we're not judging it and criticizing it. And it's amazing how if we can lay off of the judgments, how much transformation can take place very, very quickly. Because it's the judgment and the blaming and the criticizing that cuts us off from, the, from a deeper acceptance of ourselves and therefore from love. More than anything, it's that judgment and that blame. It's that being hard on ourselves, expecting more from ourselves. It's a very, especially strong in this kind of society, a very high-powered, pressured society where people have to perform. It's very strong. And so even more so, it's, it should be emphasized, compassion for yourself, love for yourself, acceptance, non-judgment. Breathe it in. <laughs> Breathe it in. I'm okay. I'm worthy. You know, deeply, deeply, deeply feeling this in our in, your, in the bottom of your soul, because it's true. And it's only at this level that we start to truly, truly forgive ourselves for who we are. We're just human, and we have many, many lifetimes, a whole history of lifetimes in which we were acting out of ignorance and blindness, where there wasn't a lot of understanding. But that's the whole process of why we were born to begin with and why this whole evolutionary process of spiritual development is unfolding for us the way that it is. And the more that we're able to accept whatever it is inside of ourselves without judgment and forgive ourselves, forgive ourselves for 
the memories that we have of the things that we did that weren't skillful. Like with my friend in Thailand. I have to forgive myself for that on some level. We've all done things like that that were unskillful, in which we're coming out of reaction. So forgiveness is such a wonderful, wonderful tool and is absolutely necessary in conjunction with Vipassana practice because there are things there which we are going to have to forgive in very deep levels. And as that process continues, as the forgiveness deepens, we feel more forgiveness for ourselves and our heart starts to heal and we start to feel much more love and compassion for ourselves. It's much easier to forgive other people. We can't forgive somebody else until we forgive ourselves. We can't really have compassion for somebody else until we have it for ourselves. We can't love another being until we love ourselves. That's why it all begins here. And then as we start to heal and feel whole and complete again, then the love is so much more fuller and we're able to experience this love and share it with other people the way that we all want to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.